It's Wednesday, January 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As we get closer to the inauguration of Joe Biden, the FBI and security officials are warning of security threats at the Capitol and possibly all 50 states. Lawmakers have been briefed on four specific threats, including one where armed Trump supporters would surround the Capitol, preventing Democrats from entering. In the meantime, the FBI has over 160 open cases on people who stormed the Capitol last week. Julie Grace Prufke, Capitol Hill reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, as vaccinations in the U.S. continue to ramp up slowly, the next phase may be even harder to administer. Finding and scheduling people in the next priority group could be a logistical nightmare. Doctors, offices, and pharmacies are expected to offer the vaccines next, and mass vaccination sites are also being set up. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for continued challenges in vaccinating everyone. Finally, the Trump administration has made it easier for businesses to classify workers as independent contractors, which is a win for many gig economy companies such as Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. Workers that are independent contractors are not covered by federal minimum wage and overtime law. Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what the implications of this new rule could be. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I want to continue to ask all of our residents to stay away from the downtown, to enjoy the inauguration activities um, virtually, uh, and let our law enforcement uh, keep peace. Joining us now is Julie Grace Brufke, Capitol Hill reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julie Grace. Thank you so much for having me on. I wanted to talk about, obviously, what's going on at the Capitol after it was sieged by pro-Trump supporters last week. We're hearing a lot about what might happen in the next few days leading up to the inauguration. There's a lot of stuff going on. Lawmakers were actually briefed on security threats. They say that there could be four very specific threats that are going on. Anything from surrounding the Capitol, not letting Democrats into the building, and among other things, the FBI has warned that There could be protests, demonstrations, whatever you want to call it, at all 50 state capitals. There's a lot going on. And the range of days, it can start on Sunday and leading all the way through next Wednesday, the day of the inauguration. So, Julie Grace, what are we hearing about what's going on? So I've spoken to multiple Democratic lawmakers since her call last evening. And as you said, they are talking about four specific armed threats, kind of a similar right wing extremist crowd that was kind of seen storming the Capitol last Wednesday. And I think, I mean, having been in the Capitol myself last Wednesday in the chamber, I think there has been such a raised concern among members on both sides of the chamber, really having things locked down and upping security protocol up here. So I've definitely seen since then fences go up. There's definitely members of the military everywhere, which was not a strong presence up here prior to the events of last week. So there's definitely more precautions, but still remaining concerns given the it could be thousands of people that are coming. Tell me about some of the conversations you've had with lawmakers and them being afraid about what's going on. I've seen other interviews where, you know, they're saying they are concerned about what could happen and get into a little bit more about what these threats could be. I mean, they're definitely worried. I mean, especially after the votes last week, we saw a mob of people that completely believed that the election was stolen, trying to essentially overthrow the democracy and try and prevent these electoral college votes from being certified. So, I mean, I, I, No, I've spoken to people that in a lot of stories haven't wanted to go public and have talked on background about how they're concerned about threats to their families. And I think that the uh, kind of the people from this QAnon, who buy into this QAnon conspiracy theory have really kind of presented a huge threat to 
a lot of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle that have kind of backed the election results. We actually had a briefing from the FBI earlier saying they've opened 160 case files on people that were at the Capitol building that day. There's going to be a range of charges being brought. But still, you know, it's a lot for them to work through, but a lot more on the security front in the next coming days. We're hearing, as I mentioned, a bunch of stuff that could be happening anywhere from January 17th all the way through the 20th. I've been told by different lawmakers, I mean, they've cautioned me that they've told their staff and we're like, if you can avoid being at the Capitol around then, just even if they are outnumbered, I mean, thousands of people showing up armed is scary for anyone who witnessed what happened last week. And I definitely think those concerns will continue through next week. And lawmakers specifically themselves are getting threats as well. It's not just kind of this looming threat of what could happen on these days. You know, lawmakers individually, as they're kind of moving around, are getting a lot of threats. I think one of the things that law enforcement has been able to kind of do is especially kind of looking at what happened last week is able to look at different social media networks and kind of what these threats are on sites like Parler or Twitter and Facebook on how uh, kind of all of these people have kind of been coordinating to try and also attack local state capitals and continue kind of this uprising, which could pose a huge threat of violence across the country. There was a lot of lawmakers at one point early on were saying, oh, it could have been Antifa, other groups like that. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican, had to tell members of his own party on a call that they had as well to kind of tone that down. He said that the FBI has been talking to them, saying it wasn't Antifa. It was these far right extremists and pro-Trump supporters that did this. And he was telling his own members, you got to stop kind of stoking these fears. House Republican Conference had their first call since the attacks last Wednesday, and that definitely came up. I think there were a lot of frustrations, particularly on the moderate side of the Republican Party from members, that this rhetoric was just going to continue to incite violence. Kevin McCarthy did tell his members that after being briefed by the FBI that it was an Antifa. We'd heard Congressman Matt Gates say on the floor shortly after the attacks that he kind of rose that. We heard Mo Brooks kind of raise the same thing, and he kind of tamped down on that false narrative and told his members that they kind of needed to tamp down on that rhetoric and stop kind of spreading this unfounded information. Have you had a chance to speak to any lawmakers about impeachment efforts going on in the House? I know a lot of people kind of changed their attitudes towards a lot of this after the mob attacked the Capitol building, but uh, has anybody said anything about impeachment? I've talked to numerous members that have said they feel like it could rise to the level of impeachment where they would like to support it, but they're worried about having a smooth transition and the kind of moving forward with that could just incite more unrest throughout the country with these people. So I think they've got those safety concerns there, once again, that could deter some people despite wanting to support that. And the other thing that's been raised to me is that they would kind of like to see a further investigation into what Trump's comments were, who he had been speaking to up up at the Capitol, kind of what the level of coordination was or how much he knew ahead of some of his supporters coming in and storming the Capitol and having this maybe take place at a later date where there's kind of a fuller investigation, they think more members could potentially join on board if that were the case. Julie Grace Brufke, Capitol Hill reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We clearly have enough vaccine at this point to begin to expand and get more and more of the vulnerable individuals in our country, vaccinated. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me. wanted to talk about the vaccination effort going on right now amid the pandemic. Nearly 9 million people have been vaccinated in the United States. 
This is out of 25.5 million doses that have been distributed so far. This is according to the CDC. So the rollout has not been going as planned. It's ramping up, but it's starting off slow. I think by the beginning of the year, officials wanted some 20 million people vaccinated already. So we're not really hitting the numbers that we wanted. And the next phase of the vaccination effort will actually be even harder. The logistics get amplified. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about what's going on. You know, the first phase of the vaccine rollout, which has not been growing, right, has been mostly been focused in nursing homes and hospitals. In some ways, you can say this is the easy part because everyone in a hospital is already in a hospital, right? Everyone in a nursing home is already in a nursing home. You have a list of names. You know who to, who to contact. It's much easier to get those people vaccinated than to, say, get everyone over the age of 75 in a given city or a given state. So for what's next, it's just logistically going to be a lot more complicated. You're going to see hospitals and counties and states trying to stand up mass vaccination clinics that can vaccinate hundreds or thousands of people in a day. And when you're talking about so many people, you know, you're not just talking about storing the vaccine or giving the vaccine. You're also thinking about traffic flow and phone systems like and sign-up systems. And like we're seeing problems with that already, for example, in Florida where people are trying to sign up on Eventbrite and finding out that these are fake scams. There's just a lot of logistics that come to, with this large scale. And also, you know, when we're giving vaccines out at these clinics and then eventually at doctor's offices and pharmacies, these vaccines have really unusual storage requirements. You know, as we've probably all heard a lot about, they have to be frozen and then thawed. In the case of the Pfizer vaccine, it has to be diluted. They're multi-dose vials, have to be used in a certain number of hours. So we should just probably expect some mistakes to be made, right? Like we're all only human. And the more points of distribution there are, the more kind of individual mistakes there might be. These mass vaccination sites are going to be popping up pretty soon. We're already seeing it in places like Los Angeles, where they turned Dodger Stadium initially into a mass testing site. They're closing the testing portion down, and they're making a mass vaccination site now so that they can hopefully get people going. But going back to your earlier point, where the first tier of people that most at risk, you know, we're bringing the vaccines to them specifically. And the next tier and getting people, you know, maybe even some that are reluctant to take the vaccine and kind of coordinating that whole effort, that's going to be one of the next big things. There's been a lot of talk about vaccinating the first tier, but what if you have leftover doses? Don't let them go to waste. Vaccinate whoever's available. So this is going to be one of the difficulties, too, coming around. I think one of the things you're seeing, especially with what to do with leftover doses, is um, obviously we sort of have multiple goals within our vaccination program, right? Like the first biggest one is to vaccine up people to get to herd immunity so that we can stop worrying about the virus. But within that, we're also trying to decide who to prioritize and the reasons we're prioritizing certain groups, for example, healthcare workers and people who are elderly, is that we want to, one, preserve our hospital capacity and two, save the most lives, people who are especially at risk, people who are elderly over 75 or 65, depending on their kind of exact state criteria. And so sometimes these goals of vaccinating everyone and vaccinating specific populations can really be in tension. You know, it's not necessarily like there's a right answer. It's that there are two ways you can do it, and both of them are going to require some trade-offs. So the faster you go, the fastest way is to literally just take everyone who comes, right? But that may not be the way that saves the most lives immediately. But if you're trying to reach everyone who is in the high-risk group first, like, that's going to take time, you know? I think the long tail of trying to vaccinate everyone in the priority group is going to be hard. So then the question is, how quickly do you open up to the next group? 
And I think there are really hard trade-offs here. And I think it would be good to have kind of clear guidelines about what to do because, you know, it's sort of like whatever you do, some people have legitimate reasons to get mad at you. So then, like, how do you empower states and local officials to act decisively when they need to? And we're going to be seeing doctor's offices, pharmacists, gearing up to start offering the vaccines as well. And that requires some training, too, because as you mentioned, some of the difficulties in storing and keeping these doses of vaccine viable. So these are all kind of the next things we're going to be seeing. And as you said, we're going to see some stumbles along the way still to come. I think what's sort of a kind of consistent pattern with the vaccine distribution is in some ways similar to what we've been seeing early on when we were talking about PPE and testing is that every state is kind of deciding on their own. In this case, they do have federal guidelines to go after, but every state is kind of making their own version of their guidelines, sometimes more based on the federal guidelines than others with the vaccine. And then you're seeing states kind of them giving it to counties to implement, or you're seeing counties them giving it to hospitals to implement, especially in this first phase. I think there can be a lot of anger directed at people who are at the lowest rung who are actually trying to give out the vaccine, hospitals and counties. But I think some of the problems we're seeing are also failures at leadership, really. Failure to have kind of clear guidelines about what to do if there are doses left over. So I think, you know, it would just be really would really help get this vaccination process back on track is to have just really clear leadership of what the goals are and like also what the contingencies are when things don't go according to plan because right. <laughs> of course things aren't something as big as complicated as this. Exactly. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Trump administration here is trying to say those workers are independent contractors. They're in business for themselves. And that butts heads with some advocates' views, especially in California, that they should be counted as employees. Joining us now is Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Sure. Happy to be here. we got some new rules from the Trump administration when it comes to gig economy companies and their workers. This new rule is going to make it easier for them to classify workers as independent contractors This is kind of a win for companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. This was actually a fight that played out in California just recently. California passed a law basically saying you had to classify these people as employees to offer them greater protections. There was a ballot initiative. People voted on it to exempt these companies and let them classify their workers as independent contractors. So now we're seeing this rule on the federal level from the Labor Department. Eric, tell us what we're seeing about this. So this has been a fight that's been simmering for several years as the gig economy has grown in profile. And the debate is whether someone like an Uber driver, DoorDash delivery person is an employee of that popular app, or if they are an independent contractor, someone like that you might have come to your house and fix something for you, and then you might not do business with them again for months or ever again. You know, this applies certainly to those gig workers, but it actually is much broader than that. Many people might not even realize, but the assistant in their office or the person that might clean in a factory, those people are often independent contractors as well. So it's broader than just the gig economy, but the Trump administration here is trying to say those workers are independent contractors. They're in business for themselves. And that butts heads with some advocates' views, especially in California, that they should be counted as employees. One of the main things is that they won't be covered by federal minimum wage and overtime laws. So how would this new rule from the government impact any of that? These independent contractors, I guess they'll just negotiate more for their own. But beyond kind of the Ubers and Lyfts and DoorDashes, what could this mean for the economy? 
it's really been a gray area. This is actually the first time there's been federal regulation specifically on the point of independent contractors. So if you're covered as an employee, you get these coverages under the Fair Labor Standards Act. You also often get other benefits. For example, you don't have to pay your end, the employer end of Social Security. You may get health benefits. You may get vacation time, things of that nature. So when you're an independent contractor, you, you don't get that. But the companies that work with these independent contractors point out that, for example, you know, I work for the Wall Street Journal. I can't also go right for the New York Times. I'm exclusive to the Wall Street Journal. Uber drivers, that's not the case. They can deliver for DoorDash. They can drive for Lyft. And then the next day they can drive for Uber. So they have flexibility, but they give up, say, minimum wage protections. Now, are all states required to follow this new rule? Can they pass their own laws the way California did? How is that going to work out? In this particular federal law, it doesn't have jurisdictions over the state. It's kind of similar to minimum wage. It is actually part of the minimum wage, same law that includes the minimum wage. California, where I live here in Maryland, we have higher minimum wages than the federal minimum wage of 725. Same thing, states can choose to basically follow this outline or they can put in place their own. And uh, several states have not gone as far as California, but they've taken aspects of the California law and tried to narrow the scope of an independent contractor. How is this going to work with the incoming administration? Because what I saw was that this rule doesn't go in effect until March 8th. President-elect Joe Biden will already be in office by then. What does he do if he doesn't like this rule or, you know, his Labor Department wants to change this? How does that work out? I mean, that's a little bit to be determined. I just spoke with the transition team and they said that this rule could be frozen upon Joe Biden entering office. But whether he can do away with it, it might not be as easy as a stroke of a pen. The Trump administration worked for years on this rule. To undo a rule, sometimes you have to go through that exact same process, which means it could take two or three years of rulemaking, or it could take a prolonged court fight to make changes. And some of these changes that happen today could hold in the course of that. What have some of these gig economy companies said about this? Obviously, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, they were fighting for this. They say that their workers prefer to be labeled as independent contractors rather than employees. It offers them all that flexibility that they often tout. But what are you hearing as far as from employees and the companies themselves? Uber put out a statement that they were very supportive of this and they were excited to see the rules around this updated. I mean, this law goes back to the 1930s, so they weren't envisioning smartphones and apps at that time. So there's a probably a decent argument they need to be updated. DoorDash told us that, you know, most of their people that are on their platform work for them less than 10 hours a week. We know from other data that most of the time these folks have other jobs or other sources of income, and this is a bit of a side hustle. So to some extent, there's a concern that if they were had to be classified as employees, many fewer individuals would work for these outlets, and they would have to be fewer employees working more hours would be the more likely outcome. You know, it's a mix among workers who saw a lot of comments to the federal government about this. Uh, some employees saying, hey, I, I'm able to do this while my kids are at school or I do it on the weekends when my spouse is home to watch family. Others say, you know, hey, I really need health benefits. I really need minimum wage protections because there's times where I'm out there and I'm not getting enough rides to even make seven twenty-five an hour. And so those workers probably would be frustrated to see this being enacted. Eric Morath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.